More and more, as the world is moving faster and faster, it's very hard to be successful and be mediocre. It's very hard to be the same as everybody else. You know, we have all the robo-advisor phenomenon that's been happening for a while, but now the AI phenomenon. And if you don't specialize, niche, and really stand out from the crowd, you're going to end up with people who do it themselves, you know, online things that do it, or you're just going to be reduced to functionary and not really be seen as a professional expert. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Stephen Oliver, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing, my friend? Good. Great to see you again. Great to see you. We were just talking before we recorded. I mean, it's basically we're switching tables or switching sides of the table, whatever you want to say. Yeah, yeah. You had me. You are very kind to have me on your podcast. And I'm happy to have you here because I just found our conversation insightful. And I think you bring a ton to the to the community. So I'm excited to talk about you know everything from your experience of marketing and, and coaching and just the, the change you've seen in the industry over the years you've been in it. I think there's so, so much insight that we can all learn for what it means going forward. So I'm, I'm excited to dig into all of that with you here today. But before, I always like to get to know you. And I, I know that you're into you do a lot with the martial arts community nowadays, but I always to learn more about individuals. I always like to ask the question of, you know, what did the 13-year-old Stephen Oliver want to be when he grew up? Well, it, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. I kind of floated between I wanted to be a rock concert promoter and a world kickboxing champion. So uh, I was thinking that my path in martial arts was going to be competition. And then I uh, worked my way through college working with a stable of world championship level people and and figured out that was a really hard way to make a living <laughs> and and shifted gears pretty quickly but but interestingly in, in in especially in high school i i was very interested in in music not so much as a musician but i was managing a band promoting you know uh, events at my high school one thing or another so i really thought i was going to be end up being uh, in that industry back at that period of time then i went to uh, i went to georgetown got a degree in economics thinking i was going to end up on wall street I mean, those are, I can see the, uh, the synergies of the two, right? You know, rock concert promoter and, and economics. I mean, there are some economics there, but, but yeah. tell us more about that, <laughs> that, that journey, right? Going from, you know, being really into music to now finding yourself at Georgetown into economics and ultimately into wealth management. I mean, it's a, to walk us through that kind of progression through the journey of life there. Well, I, I think to a great extent, it was, you know, I got a love of economics in, in uh, my first couple of years in college. I wasn't too sure what my what my major was going to be, but I, I really started looking at it and, and decided if I wanted to be at Harvard or Stanford or Wharton for an MBA, it was a good undergraduate. So that, that really was the, was the logic at the time. And as I ended up, I worked my way through college teaching karate, running a martial arts school. And I figured out that the, you know, it wasn't the technical skill set that was really the missing ingredient for most people. It was the getting out in the community, getting the name recognition, getting the the marketing. And, and I happened to be, you know, kind of in even that side, born with a silver spoon in my mouth. But the organization I was working with was a multi-million dollar operation, biggest probably in the world. And the head of that organization was truly a genius at marketing. He was teaching everybody from Muhammad Ali to, you know, the coach of the Redskins. Uh, I mean, you can, go, you can go through a list, then Tony Robbins, et cetera. But he was the instructor for Congress. He was in the Washington Post on all the major TV stations all the time, 
all the way to one of his deals. He ended up on CNN Worldwide every 30 minutes for uh, 24 hours. So he was just a genius at connecting with celebrity, becoming a celebrity, creating a reputation in his area. And I figured out pretty quickly working for him that, you know, that really was part of the secret sauce of, of the success that he was having. But it, of course, that cuts across all kinds of lines. I, I want to dive into that for a second in a second after I ask this next question, because like that idea of how to, how he went about or that, that mentor went about creating celebrity status and, and getting integrated in that way. I think there's something there that we can all learn from uh, in terms oh, of marketing. But before we get to that point, I, I want to continue kind of on this reflective state of looking back, you know, you've been, you've been doing coaching and consulting within wealth management for, you know, 22, 25 years almost. And, you know, that's, that's a long, that's a, that's a long time. You've seen a lot, right? I just think about what's evolved within our industry, you know, where we were just say in 2000 relative to where we are now, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty drastic. I'm curious from your standpoint, how have you had to evolve the strategies and the insights you've utilized for coaching and consulting over that period of time? What have been some of the biggest evolutions in your own practice, in your own strategies over those years? Because I just feel that you've had such a finger on the pulse for so long through some massive amounts of change within our, our industry. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a tough question. You know, I, I, I guess I, I really stuck my foot into it to begin with. In 1999, I wrote uh, my first book on internet marketing as it applies to the, to the industry. And if, if you took just that segment, of course, it's changed massively. When I wrote the book, Yahoo was the biggest source uh, as a directory. AltaVista, which you know is is a non-entity now, uh, was the search that you were trying to uh, uh, work in. As far as even buying clicks, it was the early days of GoTo, which became Overture, which became the inspiration for for Google's business model. But the online world, of course, is changing every week. I mean, right now, even for my own business, we're suffering through new email regulations, new regulations with text messaging, new compliance issues for advisors on the on the back end with regard to all of that. So that's changed dramatically. I, I think probably the biggest tectonic shift that's happening is that more and more as the world is moving faster and faster, it's very hard to be successful and be mediocre. It's very, very hard to be the same as everybody else. You know, we have all the robo-advisor phenomenon that's been happening for a while, but now the AI phenomenon. And if you don't specialize, niche, and really stand out from the crowd, you're going to end up with people who do it themselves, you know, online things that, that do it, or you're just going to be reduced to functionary and not really be seen as a professional expert. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the idea of just looking at marketing in general, how we market, you know, especially on the digital side has transformed. But then you think about I think about kind of how you think about strategy for your firm relative 20 years ago to now, right? And you can think about marketing in a bucket, but just think about what you were mentioning with specification and niche, right? Yeah, I remember when when we started our firm, it was all about just being an RIA and being independent. Like that was your right. differentiator. Uh, and and then yeah. you were just serving every anybody and everybody that would come to you and people wanted just to go to someone that was independent. And now we've evolved to the side of saying, You've got to be focused on a on a specific narrow niche and segment, which you can't be broad. You got to be narrow, which is what they've been talking about in the SaaS bit world forever. With the technology world, you got to figure out what your niche is and go serve that. Yeah, I, I'm curious 
transitioning into this marketing bucket, because that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time. Uh, and we're going to talk about niche marketing and having a niche in a little bit. But you know, talk to me about that mentor you mentioned, what you learned from him regarding becoming celebrity. Like, What was it about the networking and getting out there and creating a name for yourself, which I think is so valuable for us to learn in this industry where we are the business to some extent, right? That's the beauty of this business. That is the moat, is the relationship aspect of it. And it's a matter of how do you get your name and your value of your firm and of you out there more more extensively. So what were some lessons learned from that individual that that you think can translate over to the people and advisors in the industry today? Well, I was I was relaying this to one of my my associates just a couple of days ago and and you know how it is with mentors and teachers of of all ilk oftentimes when you're getting the greatest advice from them is not at the point that you're you're open to listening and hearing the best advice and and one of the points that he told me years ago was always use your name. Don't try to hide behind a, you know, a, a corporate facade. And I, at the time, kind of discounted that and did the opposite. And it, it was it was kind of like the teenage son ignoring the dad in, in the in the sense of the way I was hearing the advice. I, I, I would say I was really good at watching what they were doing and and picking up on the details. And when when given direct, very valuable advice, oftentimes discounted it. But that was one of the, the things. The other thing in just watching, in this case, his name was Jun Ri. He's a, a Korean-American who was also known as the father of American Taekwondo. But one of the things that I noticed about him is, you know, if you want to use the word opportunistic, he was very opportunistic in the sense of he was very good at watching what was going on and finding where the opportunities were. And, uh, you know, just one story is... Uh, Washington, D.C., when I was living there years ago, was the murder capital of the world, or at least of the U.S., you know, it was pretty, pretty bad. But one, there was a, a, a situation where a congressman was mugged. And June Reese sees this in the paper, and then another incident where, a, a, what, what would you call an ambassador, had a, a similar situation. So the minute he saw that in the newspaper, he immediately reached out and contacted the person about teaching them martial arts. And well, you know, congressmen like publicity. So it was a marvelous opportunity for this congressman to get the story of being mugged and then doing something about it into the Washington Post, ABC, CBS, NBC. But it led him into a, do- a foot in the door, and he ended up being the official instructor for Congress for 50 years. Taught everybody from H.W. Bush to uh, Joe Biden to Newt Gingrich, you know, all, all along the line. But I think that's something that is hard for people to do is to watch the news, watch the environment, and figure out where their opportunities are. One of, the, one of the best ways to get press is to jump on top of the story that's already going on. As you well know, producers aren't trying to screen people out. What they're trying to do desperately is find experts on whatever the current news story is, and so find somebody to talk to. They have a hard time doing that. That's a, a rough job. So if you're paying attention to what's going on and finding opportunities where you're a perfect fit, it's, it's a sure foot in the door. The other thing, by the way, he was very good at is attaching himself to celebrities and then by way of that becoming a celebrity. I, there's a, a great old video of him receiving awards from Bob Hope. And it was Wilt Chamberlain and, and Muhammad Ali both receiving an award at the same time. And he, he took the opportunity to challenge Ali and challenge Will Chamberlain while getting the award from Bob Hope. It was it was one of those, you know, just priceless moments. 
but of course it endeared him to Ali and Chamberlain and uh, you know and, and Bob Hope, but it, it it then became its own little secondary news story. Well, did, did they accept the invitation to whatever he was challenging them to, or did well, they, did they Ollie, pass? Ollie became a student of his. So Ollie did, in fact, become a student of his. He, uh, uh, I mean, this is a long time ago now, but he had a basically an MMA fight with a, with a wrestler, and Junior taught him before that and a couple of other things. And uh, But, it, you know, the publicity that came across from everything from Junior taking him to Korea to having Muhammad Ali show up at events there in Washington was just was just phenomenal. That's amazing. You know, and you said something that you learned from observing him. And I I think it is so true that we we, we tend not to learn the lessons of our mentors or of just experiences until it's a little bit later and we we learn it the hard way. And then we're like, wow, we we did learn this in the past and we should have taken note of that. I I can see that now being on the parenting side. I, I can see that very vividly of what I made mistakes on. But, you know, one thing you mentioned was the ability to see what's going on in the world and find an opportunity to go there. And I I wonder from your perspective, where do advisors stand on that spectrum of being able to see outside of the industry? I think sometimes, you know, when I hear that, how I interpret it is I say, well, let's go look at what other companies and other industries and other businesses are doing and how they're doing it. And maybe it's not a one-to-one direct comparison, but there's something there we can learn from, you know, and everybody likes to go to the apples of the world. But like you think about like uh, Patagonia or uh, Costco or Chick-fil-A and and what they're doing. And I found this to be so valuable to bring back and say, how can we do something similar, but that meets what we do? Where do we stand? How much do we have to grow as an industry to get to that point? And what are some ways that we can get better at that? How do we get out of our comfort zone to grow even more in that way? Well, that's, that's super important. Another mentor, Dan Kennedy, is a you know, marketing guru type. He, he calls it marketing incest. Most people go into business, they look around at what everybody else is doing and do the same thing, which means you're just copying mediocrity. You know, Go back a little further, Earl Nightingale famously said, if you go into a business and you don't have a successful business model, look at what everybody else is doing and do the opposite. Within, as you well know, within the industry, it's like everybody's doing a sameness contest. They're looking around what everybody else is doing and doing exactly the same thing in the industry. And all of the best tools that I've used, both for my own businesses and that I've, I've shared with other people, are things I picked up from other niches, sometimes fairly comparable, sometimes, as you said, you know, Apple or Chick-fil-A or Costco or something like that. But if you're, if you're not constantly aware I see a lot of times other service businesses. You go to the dentist, the doctor, you know, some other service business. And unfortunately, 90% of the lessons you learn are exactly what not to do, right? But very often you can find examples of excellence and things that you can replicate and or figure out how it applies to you. I'm I'm trying to think of that come to mind some companies that you think and I, like let's look at it from a marketing lens, right? Not necessarily like a doing business lens, but a, of a growing business lens. I'm curious on your side, when you look at it from a marketing focus, what are some of those companies that just do it so well for their industry, right? That 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 we can learn from from your perspective. And, you know, I think about, 
you know, I've done a lot of focus on this within the service side. And I think about like from a servicing standpoint, like Chick-fil-A is unbelievable. Peloton is unbelievable at their servicing and setting things up, right? I think about, you know, the ease of, of when you have an issue, you know, like at American Express, I've had a ton of great success there. But that's from a servicing side. From a marketing standpoint of doing a great job marketing and marketing to their people, whether you fall into their people or not, what are some examples that you've seen that that just do it really well from your perspective? I have a, a, a list of them top of my tongue here, but I'll, I'll tell you one that probably would, might surprise a lot of people is Harley Davidson. Is Harley Davidson is just phenomenal from the standpoint of and and by the way, I joke that you know I, I, I I'm a little into motorcycles and I uh, got hooked into going to a trip on to Sturgis with uh, uh, several of my friends. And they were giving me uh, grief about not being enough of a biker, but I rode my bike, my Harley to Sturgis and traded in for BMW. So I joked that I resigned from the uh, cult of Harley Davidson into the cult of uh, BMW. But Harley Davidson is better than any company I've ever seen at really pulling you into the cult once you get there. Of course, they have a demographics problem now. They same as many advisors is. You know, their uh, audience is aging now and they haven't quite gotten the 20 or 30 somethings in. But when you buy a Harley, I bought one and I get this plaque with a picture of the bike that I bought, you know, to put on the wall with a personalized plaque on the wall. But when you buy the bike, you're automatically inducted into the HOG membership. HOG stands for Harley Owners Group. And the HOG membership, every, every year you're getting these stupid pins and patches for your damn black jacket. So they're they're sending you road atlases. They're sending you invitations to events. They have these constant meetings and outings and one thing or another, you know, as you're constantly getting these pins and one thing. But it, it's, it really becomes this like little community within your city of people who are, who are like that. Another company very similar to that is Porsche. Is Porsche... I've, I've had any number of nice cars. You know, if you have a, a Mercedes or a Jaguar or a Cadillac or whatever it might be, you know, you're, you're not in anything special. Corvette comes kind of close. But with Porsche, everybody's waving at each other and they're part of the, the part of the Porsche club and there's Porsche club outings and there's all this stuff. And you want to create that environment of there's this special thing that you're involved with. It's unique. It's almost cultish. And I was having a, a conversation with one of my clients and, you know, the number one reason why people quit advisors, I've seen the stats over and over and over again, is they just say they don't get communicated with enough and there is some level of conversation, communication. But what do most advisors do? How they sign, they sign them up, they meet with them once or twice a year and they don't have the outings, the club, the pins, the special things. It's one of those things that really can be replicated, having lunches for clients, having Zoom meetings for clients, having all kinds of special events, activities, uh, one thing or another. That should be something that's happening every month, uh, preferably something going on every week. I absolutely love that example. I never knew that about Harley at all because I'm not a I'm not a biker. But to be able to learn that, right the the sense of community and the sense of value of even these like tchotchkes of these you know pins and these these things to put it creates this like that you're valued and it creates this to your point your this cult and it, and it kind of goes to the sense that and I'm curious to know kind of your thought on this. I, I've been thinking a lot about this. Is that like you know how do we make wealth management more experiential? 
right? Yeah. How do we make it more experiential? How do we create that cult and maybe create offshoots or niches that are focused on just specific people, whether it's riders or hikers or whatever it is, and create this sense of like, you know, your own little jacket patches or letterman jackets, whatever it is that you're, you know, as you're guiding towards different things or putting on these events, because it's hard to put together events that are, when you're serving just maybe like a a high net worth community. It's hard to figure out what events are going to attract to certain people. So you're going to get these like little kind of pockets. But if you have, like you said, and this goes into our next conversation about niche marketing and and creating a niche and a target is when you have that, you can talk to them and you can double down on that. And you don't have to worry about nobody being aligned because people are aligned because they've, they've raised their hands and I'm part of this cult. Or community yeah. from that yeah. standpoint. Yeah. So I'm curious on your side, have you seen wealth management firms do that? But more so, what are the steps necessary that a firm needs to go through to identify a niche and to make either that transition if they've been around for a while to get there or if they're kind of stepping into a new venture to, to build out that niche community? Well, I mean, that, that that's a question we could talk for a week about, right? But to narrow it down a little bit, I think number one is go from trying to be corporate facing to be a personality. You know, it doesn't matter what the company is, no matter how well respected they are, is people don't talk about companies so much as they talk about people. Now, you know, the Harley example, obviously, it's it's, it's more of a branding of a, a thing. But I think that's number one is advisor firms tend to be this button down, conservative, no personality base whatsoever. But I would much rather know about your hobbies, what you're interested in. And, you know, you you said earlier, you know, you don't talk about sex, drugs, or politics. Well, I, I gotta tell you, I could, I could, I could create a base of people on any one of those subjects as well, right? I mean, I could I could create a base of people who are hyper liberal. I could create a base of people who are hyper conservative. I could create and, and usually when we're talking about niches, what we're thinking about is industry niches. And, and that's the easiest thing, right? I mean, if I'm going to be the guy or gal for dentists and I put together a bunch of dentists, it makes it easier to come up with interesting things to talk about, ways to be more holistic, ways to target them. Heck, if I in, in any industry niche, I can go to the SRDS, Standard Rate and Data Service. I can figure out what all the all the industry niche magazines. I can figure out what mailing lists are available. I could I could become a columnist in their in their trade magazine. I could show up at their at their events. There's there's so many different ways to market. Once I've really defined the who of who I want to target, but then it gives me the ability to really be more conversational, fluid, be able to speak their language and and bring things to them that are going to be interesting. Yeah, I think that that's so key. And and you mentioned this idea of not hiding behind the company and, and being a personal brand and not a company brand. And you think about, you know, Harley Davidson being different, but you, you know, I think about like Apple and I think about some of these other big companies, like there was always a personal brand that drove that brand initially. Then they got to a size that then the brand became its own. There was that's like the succession plan. But there's always there's a person that drives it initially. Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak for Apple. You think Ray Kroc for for McDonald's. McDonald's. You think about 
the the Kathy family for Chick-fil-A, right? Like there was people that they connected with the follower base, but then they ultimately built up such a following base that then they were able to move it on to the company. And we try to jump that because we only see the company side. We don't remember what it all got to. Yeah. And we have to remember that this is a relationship business, right? We're a relationship business. People connect to people. And so you have to create your personal brand and so many people step avoid that. And it's so easy to create your personal brand now with all the media outlets out there. And so I, I, I want to ask you from that standpoint, let's say I'm an advisor, I'm coming in, you know, I'm like, I'm listening to this and I'm like, Steven, I'm all in. I agree. I've been hiding behind my corporate brand for too long. I want to start creating a personal brand. Steven, walk me through what that looks like. How do I need to think about my personal brand? Should I just go get on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and just start posting or, or make my own blog? Like, what does that look like? Well, let's let's step back on the on the transition for just a, a, a second. There, you were talking about. Yeah, let me let me give you an example. I, I find it interesting because it's it's kind of the opposite of what I would have I would have done. I've been a big movie buff for years. Go to, you know go to a lot of movies. I try to talk my son and previously my daughter before she moved to Seattle and into all, all of the interesting ones. And one of the theater chains is United Artists. Well, the background on United Artists. Tell me what's more more interesting. United Artists is a National chain is part of the Regal Cinema brand now. But what's more interesting, United Artists, the way it got its name was it was Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and somebody else of that ilk. I forget. There was three of them that, that decided that their films weren't being seen in a quality enough environment and created their own theater chain, thus naming it United Artists because of Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and nowadays, 99.9% of people who go to United, uh, United Artists Cinema have no idea the background. There's no signage in the building. There's no history of Charlie Chaplin, the, our founding, any of that stuff. Well, and I went to Dairy Queen recently. I don't go to Dairy Queen very often, but Dairy Queen did a really good job of creating this whole plaque and display of the evolution and where they came from and how they evolved. Now, if you look at the way that companies evolve, wouldn't United Artists be a lot better off to be featuring Charlie Chaplin, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., the reason why it was formed, what the values of the founders were, how we're if elevating the, that today? You know, they would never have dreamed of Atmos Dolby or, you know, or the recliner seats. But we've taken see it, it becomes much more empowering. All of a sudden I'm interested in the theater if they kept that founder story. Right. And again, you know, Apple's done a halfway decent job of keeping Steve Jobs, you know, alive in some ways. But it, it's always a mistake to move into that corporate facing. Chick-fil-A, Kathy Truitt is a really interesting person, supported uh, boys' homes, has a, a tremendous charitable outreach in one thing or another. You know, with some of the political stuff, they moved away from that. I think that's a mistake, right? They should they should be putting the founder, who I think he's still alive, put him on the on the pedestal. His his son has taken over, but j just to go back to that one example, you know, there really was a Harley and a, a Davidson, right? But but there's so many stories. You can see so many companies where, you know, IBM has has become you know kind of a meaningless uh, symbol. But Watson was was an innovator at the same level as Musk or uh, or Jobs or or many others. You, you see how much more engaging emotionally those stories are if you keep that. 
you're so spot on. Like as you were talking, I started to connect myself. Like United Artists, I had no idea about that. I connect yeah. more with them knowing those individuals, right? And and I think that there's this like shift, whether it's a cultural shift in the world or a shift in corporate mindsets in the sense that they they've got to move away. And I, I actually kind of experienced it a little bit of like the push and pull within our own organization. I mean, we started my dad founded our firm 27 years ago, 28 years ago. We're we're now 80 plus people in five cities and and not everybody knows who dad was. And and so it's like, well, do we get to just say, hey, we're CIA and this is the culture? Or do we really continue to put him in the, the building of the founding up on it and the morals and the values that was created on? Yeah. And I can see how companies shift away because they think it's too it's too amateur to continue to highlight this guy or gal or family from a past that nobody can connect with. But in reality, that may be feeling right in the moment. I think it's detrimental longer term because we still are humans and we like connection. And human to human connection is what it's all about. Having a connection to the human that built the firm. And yeah. started the firm and the understanding of it is so key, I think, to that. Well, point. you know, a, a, another example most people will remember is remember when the Wendy's ads were done by the founder and the, the name of the company was his daughter. And ever since he passed away and, and, and that has gone away, it's gone into decline. KFC had had the colonel and they killed the colonel. Uh, of course, he was already dead before they killed him. And they, they, they brought him back in, in some interesting ways. I wouldn't say very well. But, you know, the worst thing they did is is to distance themselves from the colonel and, and to eliminate that, that branding. No, I, I think you're always better off to, to have a personality tied to it. You know, Walt with Walt Disney uh, stood for something. And so the other side of it, if you're an advisor in the middle of a big firm, though, how does that impact you? Well, and, and that's where we were going a, a minute ago before I got us distracted with that theater story. But... I think you've got to start by being interesting, right? And most every advisor that I've ever met has hobbies. They have things that they're interested in. You know, I'm not a fisherman, but I I know a guy who's deeply into fly fishing, another one who's deeply into Porsches, another one. You you know, you go through the list. You know, wear your hobbies on your sleeve. You know, you'll find other people who, who are a fan of the same university. This is tangentially different, but my my first State Farm agent when I when I moved to Denver and I had uh, my car insurance and everything, he was a Razorback fan, you know. So you know, he uh, I don't know if I don't remember if he had gone to uh, University of Arkansas or one thing or another, but he had those stupid red pigs everywhere. They were on his business card. He had the the thing on the on the deal, the suey, you know, what, whatever the hell it is. I'm not a Razorback fan, but. It was engaging. If something comes up over lunch, it's like, oh, you got to talk to John. And, you know, by the way, you know, if you don't like the Razorbacks, just bear and deal with it because he's a fanatic. But it was it was something interesting about the guy. Right. Now, you go into most insurance offices and what's interesting about it? Nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. Uh, There's no personality. There's nothing interesting whatsoever. I've got I've got another one. It's actually the first financial advisor I started working with many, many, many years ago, probably 20 years ago now. 
but he's a Porsche fanatic. He's trying to collect every iteration of the Porsche 911 Turbo. And I keep trying to get him. Why don't we do the office with, you know, the we'll do the office warehouse with a glass wall and you can have your collection over there. And then you have the conference room where you meet people and you can become the columnist for the local, regional, national Porsche club. You can have live meetings at the dealership since you spent 1.5 million with them over the years. You know, it just writes itself, right? You know, if I wasn't into Porsches, doesn't matter. He's interesting. There's something about the person that stands out, that's engaging. I keep forgetting his name, but you remember the lawyer who always wore the suede jackets with the tassels? Well, it's, it's much better to be stand out and be interesting. There's a, a financial advisor on, on uh, uh, Charles Payne's show and some of it. He's always wearing like a multicolored glasses and all this crazy stuff. It wouldn't be my gig, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be the clown, but I would want it to be where there's something interesting about me as a person and that I'm sharing that with, with people, you know, and even if it's a parent, you know, it's better to be posting pictures of your kids and you're out at Disney with the kids and you're you're on the boat or whatever it is. That stuff makes you human as opposed to just a functionary. You know, the worst thing to, in the world is just blend in like any other CPA or something like that and and be milk toast. It's, it's the, the worst possible positioning. You and I are both aligned on this. I just actually got finished writing a blog for my email newsletter that's going to go out in a couple of weeks. And it's all about authenticity and the power of authenticity. But authenticity means that you have to be vulnerable. There needs yeah. to be vulnerability. And I think that there's this like, there's this perception of what our professional persona should pose, is supposed to be. And we have to live in that box. And so if we go and show pick Suey everywhere or Porsche everywhere, then we're not in that box of how people perceive us based on the perception of the world. And I think that's BS. Yeah. That's BS. Like you, people are going to connect. You can only live that for so long because you ultimately are going to revert back to who you are. And and I think that being able to be vulnerable to show your family, to talk about a stance, take a stance on something for crying right. out loud. Right. Um, and sometimes people aren't going to like it, but we all want to be accepted. And we have this professional persona that if people don't like us, then our business is going to go down and we're fearful of that. So we're just going to take the easy, the low risk route. And, and then we're just going to say the content that everybody else is saying. And we're going to wonder why we're not being heard. Yeah. yeah. You're not being authentic. You, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at it, let's, let's go back to politics. You know, let, let, let's take the U.S. president is they are single-handedly the most famous and the most powerful person in the world at, at any time. And you can absolutely guarantee that 40% of the population hates them at any one time. Doesn't matter who it is, right? It could be Clinton, it could be Obama, it could be Bush, it could be Trump, whoever it is. And you're absolutely guaranteed that 30 or 40% are going to love them at any one time. And I think it's a good example. In order to ha be highly attractive, to some extent, you've got to be polarizing. If, if there aren't people who go, oh, that's not my person, then there also aren't people who say, oh, that is my person. I really identify with them. I really, really like what they stand for. And it, again, you got to choose judiciously. You've got you've to make an informed decision on whether you want to, you know, who do you want to repel? Who do you want to attract? But once you make that decision, you've got to be authentic in, in how you're presenting all, all of those different pieces. And it's, People are attracted to that. Again, one of the biggest problems in the industry is trust. The reason why people don't want to work with an advisor is they're afraid of, you know, the various frauds, you know, the Bitcoin thing most recently, I guess, Bankman Freed. But, you know, if you wear what you are on your sleeve, 
If you're engaged in your church, you're involved with your kids, you're thrilled about your hobbies, whatever it is, that comes across to people as a real human. That comes across to somebody as they really know what you are, they like it or they don't like it, they're going to engage or they're not engaged. It's, it's, it's the single most important way to build trust is both showing people that you like them, which comes back to the communication side of things, and really showing them who and what you are and, and uh, attracting the ones that click with you and, and repelling the ones that don't. 100% agree. I mean, we could talk about authenticity. We could talk about niche for forever. I wanted to be respectful of your time and the listener's time. But I, I before we get into our two final wrap-up questions, I, I want to ask this one question. Before we close out that last topic, I would just encourage people just to be vulnerable and try it and lean into what you are. And, and you'll be surprised at what, what happens. But before we get into the final wrap-up questions, your your book, Extraordinary Marketing for Financial Advisors, yeah, it, it, there it is right there. Go out and get it if you haven't. It's a it's a great no nonsense guide, uh, which is all you know from your experiences of forty years in the marketing side. But you know, one of the aspects of it, you talk about accelerating growth, and you talk about some of the key takeaways that advisors can have to focus on that and for like quick growth. I'm curious. I want to change that just for a second, thinking like in the James Clear mentality of of uh, Atomic Habits mm-hmm. and and small one percent gains. From your book and your learnings and your experiences, what are some of those things that advisors can start just doing every day? Those small little wins that aren't going to maybe make that like huge impact right away, but when you build them and stack them, it makes something drastic. What are some of those small things they can do every day? You know, I think one is, and, and, and this sounds kind of esoteric, but it's get in the habit of seeing opportunity all around you. And it's amazing. You can three different people can walk around the the block on uh, on any street, and one person sees twenty two points of opportunity. The other one sees nothing, you know, but the sidewalk, the Starbucks, and the parked cars, right? So if you just get in the habit of of asking yourself, what you know, what's the opportunity in this? What's the opportunity in in this association, this person, this thing that's going on? And just pay attention. It's why you pay attention to the news is there's always news stories you can jump across if you wanted to get publicity. I, I, I really think that's number one is, is condition yourself to see opportunity rather than just seeing the, the normal world around you. You know, always, always metaphorically put on new glasses and see what, what you can do that's going to be beneficial. I, I would say the second one is just force yourself to do at least one thing every day that's going to drive new client growth. Again, it's I, I see a lot of people, they, they put together the big plans. I'm going to put together this campaign. I'm going to do this. I'm going to look at, well, but what did you do today? Well, nothing. Okay, well, let's let's send down an email list, email out to everybody on the list today. Let's, you know, let's pick up the phone and talk to two or three people who are in a position that they could bring me in as a speaker or bring me into their association, one thing or another. Let's just do something every day so that we're constantly making that kind of incre- incremental growth. I love that. Take action, right? Yeah. Take action. Just do. Just do and learn, right? Just yeah. do and learn. Stephen, this has been just an incredible conversation. I mean, I think we could talk, and I think this happened during your podcast. I think we could yeah, talk we could for, for, two for hours, hours yeah. right? I mean, we could make a, a, a Tim Ferriss-style podcast and, and run for about four hours. But we're not going to do that today. Uh, but we, I would love to have you back and continue this conversation. And I know that there's everybody, there's a lot of people that are going to want to continue to hear it. Before I let you go, though, I always want to ask my two questions I ask all my guests. I'm a, I'm a, I am a, 
lifelong learner. I love curiosity. I love to read books and I love to learn through reading from people that are smarter than me, like yourself. So uh, I always ask my guests, what's one book out there that you think, other than your book, which we, we talked about, but what's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they've already read it once? Oh, that's that's interesting. You know, the that's relevant to our business. I would say Influence Science and Practice by Robert Cialdini is o- over the holidays. I went on a reading jag where uh, uh, when I was in Tulsa, we went to the uh, uh, the museum uh, the, for Black Wall Street where the race riots were, which is very good. I'd recommend it to anybody. And I got interested in Booker T. Washington. So I read a couple of books on Booker T. Washington and that got me interested in Frederick Douglass. So I'm reading a couple of books now on Frederick Douglass. And even that, brings, you know, all kinds of interesting lessons about building celebrity and relationships. Frederick Douglass's relationship with uh, Lincoln really was was pivotal. And Booker T. Washington's relationship with Teddy Roosevelt was pivotal. But as far as something that's really practical, I, I would start with Influence, Science and Practice. It's, it, to me, it's the best book ever written on the science of influence. And it teaches you the, the keys for building relationship, building credibility and, and, and so forth. Yeah, I think that that's great. And I think there's something to be taken away from reading books outside of you know, even our, our industry, right? Like you're talking about Booker T. Washington and Frederick yeah. Douglass, et cetera. I just read Sapiens and and, and the, the lessons yeah. learned. It's just so interesting to be outside of you know traditional books that I read. So stretch your legs. I have that one on my shelf too. It's a phenomenal book, a uh, really fun read. The last question I, I want to ask, and we kind of talked about it for a little bit here already, but you know, we, we talked about a lot today. And I always like to leave everybody with one actionable Thing that they could take away from our conversation. And maybe it wasn't directly that we talked about, but tangentially, what's one actual piece of advice that you think everybody should take away that they can implement today or tomorrow and better themselves or their business, et cetera, going forward? Well, I would say one is just stop giving up on prospects. So, you know, what we see a lot of advisors, they get a name of somebody who might be interested. They make that a run at them once or twice and they give up on them. And the reality we know some people are ready to work with you today. Others need a little bit of, of nurturing and education in two or three weeks. Others, it may be two or three years. And so I, I would recommend you communicate them with sending them your physical newsletter, your email, everything forever, right? I mean, it. I've had prospects where we never got them to do anything, but we got three referrals from them. So that's number one is just build a list you know, online marketing, that's kind of the common thing. But when you build the list, make sure you're mailing to them, texting to them, emailing to them. But just maintain that communication all the time. I think the number two thing would be is don't expect that you're doing such a good job for your clients that they're just going to feed you people. You've got to be constantly communicating with your clientele, staying on, on the top, sending them your newest book, sending them the newest report, inviting them to a meeting, inviting them to a, a webinar, a Zoom meeting. You, you really need to be on the tip of your client's tongue and in front of them every day, every week, not a couple times a year. I love that. That's such great poignant advice and, and something we can act on today. So I appreciate that. Stephen, as I mentioned, man, this has been a, such a fruitful conversation. I've, I've loved it. I, I've learned a lot from it. I learned a lot from our conversation on your podcast. And so I'm sure everybody's going to want to continue to follow you, maybe get in touch to work with you. What's the best way for people to continue following your journey and uh, get in touch with you? Well, they can go to advisorwealthmastery.com. It has links to the podcast and YouTube channel and the books and all that stuff. Uh, so that's probably the, the best approach. So advisorwealthmastery.com. 
you know, it's the Financial Advisor podcast. It's on YouTube and on all the podcast channels. And the book is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever. Love it. Stephen Oliver, you're the man. I appreciate all you're doing for the industry. Appreciate your time here on Bridging the Gap and hope to continue the conversation here soon. So stay well, be well, and thank you again, my friend. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 